Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get better results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. John, hi. Hey, how's it going, everyone? And this week, our topic is how to master crappy mixes. Um, I don't know about you, John, but this is one of the most common questions I get. Um, I mean, obviously, I run the Home Mastering Masterclass course uh, several times a year, and I actually ended up having to put a note um, kind of at the beginning of the course for people saying, look, the first few songs I'm going to be using as examples that I'm going to be mastering, um, they're pretty pretty good. They're in great shape. Um, but there are some examples coming up later that are not in such good shape because when I initially ran it, people were kind of, they got one or two lessons in and they were saying, well, this is all very well, but <laughs> stuff I'm working on sounds nothing like that. Um, yeah. Do people ask you, um, you know, how to work on crappy material or does everybody pretend they don't have any crappy material? Often on forums and, and, and things, I'm seeing a lot of people asking for mastering advice when they really haven't um, got a good handle on mixing techniques. And so it's it's kind of a lot of effort in the wrong area and trying to fix things that that are, you know, it, it's the wrong place for the effort to go into. Yeah, uh, and, and actually that um, kind of introduces our, the, the first thing we need to say really nicely. Um, so anybody listening, don't worry, we are going to talk about strategies to help you work on uh, challenged mixes, shall we say. But before we start, I think we kind of need to have a disclaimer, which is to say, don't try and master crappy mixes. You're only ever going to get a truly great master from a really great mix. Uh, you know, you can take a decent mix and turn it into a better sounding decent mix or maybe a master or maybe a maybe a good master. But if you if you really want great results, you need a great mix as well. So it's pretty much a waste of effort to, to put a, t- a ton of time and energy, as John says, into uh, working on a mix that is not already as good as it can possibly be. I mean, it's a delicate balancing act. You have to, for, for me as a mastering engineer, when people send me things that uh, to work on, you know, sometimes I listen to it and think, well, this is fantastic and just get straight to work. Other times I think, oh, okay, this sounds pretty good, but maybe, you know, we might need to kind of make some recommendations for things that are not going to work quite so well. And you, you see how it goes in the mastering. And then there are other times where you get something you think, oh, okay, no, you know, I, I really wouldn't feel comfortable charging somebody for, for this as it stands, which is, you know, not to say that it's disastrously bad, uh, but just that it's not yet at a point where you're going to get enough value, I would say, from the mastering process to kind of move on to that stage. And actually, that's another common question that I get. How do you know when to stop mixing and when to start mastering? Um, yeah. And perhaps we should make a note of that and do that as a topic in a future show, because I think there's some interesting stuff to be said about that too. Sure. And before we get too far into this, I want to say that any of the advice or anecdotes that we have are definitely not from our clients work. Uh, everything that comes to us sounds fantastic and uh, we'd never want to be uh, complaining about anything like that in public. Yes, absolutely. Well, no, of course. <laughs> Goes without saying that I never get sent a crappy mix to work on. Uh, thank you for pointing that out, John. That's, a, that's <laughs> an excellent uh, yes, disclaimer. Um, I think one other to say, thing to say just before, kind of, before we move on is that uh, for me, the the best masters are almost always the most minimal ones. 
the the best masters the most satisfying ones are the ones where you you get the mixes in and you think actually maybe this doesn't need mastering you know or it, it just needs a gentle level lift and there's some that sound really good and at first thought and let's say you're listening to it in the email at the beginning of the project and you're like this this is pretty much done already it sounds good and then when you get into the daw and start touching the eq you find dozens of things that you can do to improve it even further so yeah that's kind of exactly where what i was going to say is you you think initially it sounds absolutely fantastic and then when you get into it actually there are little things that you can make and these you know one of the things i love about mastering is you make all these tiny little moves and you end up with something that somehow sounds way better than it did to begin with even though if you looked at any individual song it might only have shifted ever so slightly from where it was um and i think the other thing to say is that especially if you're mastering your own material um which you know we've talked before about that's not necessarily the best thing to do but obviously lots of people do it um you're going to learn far more your skills are going to improve far more by going back and improving the mix so that you can do less in the mastering um than kind of struggling and struggling and struggling with a mix that wasn't right in the first place to try and get it somewhere that it's never actually going to get to go um uh-huh. so yeah definitely you know we are not saying it's a good idea to master crappy mixes um it's always better i would say probably to go back to the mix um and tweak things and, and you know if you have clients if you can the approach that i usually get is to do the best that I can with the material I've been given and then send them a message saying, okay, well, here's, here's how, you know, I'm hearing this at the moment, but listening to it, I'm wondering whether, you know, if we had the the chance to, to try this, this, or this, we might be able to get an even better result. You know, what do you feel about that? And, you know, sometimes they'll come back and say, yeah, fantastic. Great. And other times they'll be like, no, I'm done with this. Just go with it. Or, oh, we can't do that for whatever reason, time pressures or whatever. And, you know, you move on. But, um, that's always my preferred method. Um, but obviously sometimes we have to work with, uh, mixes that are not ideal, um, usually because mix tweaking isn't possible. So I'm thinking of, you know, demo recordings, um, you know, that where all you've got is an MP3 file or a cassette or a, an old CDR or, you know, and that's the only version of something that there is. Um, you could have a, a live recording from a mixing desk. For example, um, I'm going to come back to that example later on. Maybe the original mix files were lost or corrupted in some way, you know, hard drive crashed and there was no backup or that kind of a thing. Or, you know, if it's if it's old material, if, a little trade secret that lots of people don't know is that a reasonable amount of the CD remasters that you hear, not not the majority by any means, but some of them will actually have come from the original vinyl releases. So they will be cleaned up vinyl dubs. Um, because that's the only copy of the music that exists. You know, the tapes have gone mouldy in somebody's basement somewhere um, or, you know, are unplayable. The edits have all fallen to pieces and they can't be put back together. There's, you know, there's a ton of reasons why you might not have access to a decent copy of the original mixes or maybe there just isn't the budget to to do a remix or whatever. Um, so at that point, you know, you you need to achieve whatever you can in the mastering. Sometimes the, the, your clients just insist on it. That's all the examples I can think of, and unless you've got anything else. No, I think I think that's it. Yeah, just if the client insists or if there's just no possible way of going back to it, just depending on the type of project it is. Hmm. 
Okay, so let's get down to it. If you have to master a crappy mix, what can you do? Well, maybe we should talk about what the problems are, what the symptoms are of what we would call a crappy mix. Yeah, great minds. <laughs> uh, do, you want to, <laughs> do you want to start? I probably talk about this on every episode, but for me, it's, it's often sibilance. I think DSing is a really hard thing to do in mastering. Um, and it's it's pretty easy to handle actually in the mix. So that's one of the things that I I keep sending tracks back to the uh, the mixer or the artist uh, back with to just you know it needs a little bit more DSing, um, especially DSing the reverb. Those are that's just something that like it always just sticks out in my head mm-hmm. like crazy. Cool. And then there's the vocal level. There's there's clicks and noise and stuff like that. If the mix sounds bad, it's probably just overall imbalance between the instruments. Um, things, one instrument that sounds bad compared to everything else, tuning issues, you know, any of those things. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the just a simple imbalance of instruments is the thing that first springs to mind for me. Um, and the example, going to talk about it later, honestly, but, but just a, the, a, if you have a live recording from a desk, so it's taken from, say, the front of house desk, um, I have a particular example in mind, um, and in this situation, the bass guitar wasn't actually running through the PA at all. The guy playing bass presumably had an enormous stack of amps on stage with him, um, and it's not uncommon for a front of house engineer to just could be bass, could be uh, guitars. You know, if there's somebody who has a really uh, powerful enough rig on stage, they kind of blend the rest of the band in around the PA and maybe just reinforce ever so slightly with something through the PA. Um, so in this case, pretty much the only bass that you could hear in the recording, I, th- I think, was spill um, onto other mics. So the the bass was kind of there, but not there. And sometimes it was louder than others. And, you know, that's the kind of example. Or like you say, if the, uh, the vocals are just either way too loud or way too quiet, that can be a problem. I mean, any instrument that's just really unbalanced. If somebody's put a really dramatic EQ on... Uh, Guitars is a common one. You know, people know the the advice of, oh, you should add some upper mid um, EQ to help a guitar cut through in the mix or anything cut through in the mix. And if you, that can work if you're careful with it. If you go too far, <laughs> you just end up with an instrument that is just much, much brighter in the mid range than anything else. And that can be a huge challenge in mastering. Tuning is a nightmare and there's basically nothing we can do about that. Um, I actually had somebody kind of came to me once with a, uh, a recording that was basically fine, but had a really uh, out of tune string quartet on it. I think it was a kind of an old kind of ballady, you know, fifties crooner piece. Um, so it had this quite, which should have been a nice string arrangement on it, but they were out of tune. And I actually went to the, I don't have Melodyne, but somebody I, I knew had a copy. And I was like, can you, you know, have a go at cleaning this up? Because if, if Melodyne can fix it enough, then obviously I'll, I'll buy the software so that I can do this project. Um, cause the, the question was, could I make it just sound better? And the, the playing was one of the things they were worried about. And it, it kind of worked on the, on the instruments, but you could still hear all the out of tune stuff in the reverb and in the room tone of the recording, you know, so and it almost made it worse because you had kind of somewhat in tune instruments. Um, and like there was a wrong note that got fixed. <laughs> it was that kind of extreme. Um, but yeah, it was kind of surrounded by this sort of just halo of of out of tune nastiness <laughs> um so yeah there's not that, much we can... that in my mind that's very dissonant having the reverb 
pitched up or down differently than the instruments. It really was. I mean, the thing is, the original was so dissonant in terms of like some of the anyway. You know, you had stuff that was kind of quarter tone, sharp or flat in some cases. And one, there was one note at least that was like a semitone and wrong. So it was an improvement, but it wasn't enough of an improvement to make it listenable. Um, So, okay, so there's that. And the other classic example I would say of something that's really hard to deal with in mastering is where the instrumental balance is basically okay, uh, but you have, well, I kind of mentioned it in terms of the guitars. If you have something that is much brighter, but I'm thinking of, top end so it and and often it's vocals and drums um so if you have a drum sound with loads of top in it um but the vocals sound dull then you're just fighting a losing battle because you want to brighten up the vocals but you want to calm down the drums or vice versa you know drums where you want to get more space and air into the snare sound and the 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 cymbals and stuff but the vocal is already already very toppy that's just a kind of a nightmare waiting to happen in terms of mastering so the question is, if you have all of these problems, how are you going to deal with them? John, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, for simple things, for simple fixes, I think a lot of people forget about automation. So just volume automation or EQ automation. Um, I've had some projects where I needed to do a lot of that. And it was it was almost some of it for, um, some of it for creative enhancements mm-hmm. I was allowed to do and some of it for corrective, like, certain bass notes sticking out or just the like the the normal imbalances between verse and chorus um like like you told me a long time ago uh 4db is about right for differences between sections mm-hmm. in this case it was like it was 8db so it was just too much mm-hmm. and that only worked because the balances within that section still worked if it was the drums are are 8db louder than everything else in the this section, not much you can do there other than compress it heavily, I guess. Yeah. But that's just going to bring out ambience and stuff that you probably don't want. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, I would actually say, I mean, you're absolutely right. Automation is, I think, maybe the simplest way to solve quite a lot of problems and something that people maybe wouldn't think of, which is why it's good to include it here. Um, but it almost, you know, that I think that's right on the... I would hesitate to call a mix a crappy mix just because, say, there was too much contrast between the verses and the chorus. You know, it's yeah. Maybe I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. Right. Exactly. Um, but uh, of course, there are other things that, uh, like, actually, literally, just today, I was mastering something where there was a really loud guitar solo, um, and I was kind of listening to it, thinking, "Well, uh, that's you know what." It, and in the end, what I tried to do was just automate down the section with the guitar solo. And you would think that because you're working on a stereo stem, because everything drops in level, that just wouldn't work. But actually it did. You know, when you got the balance right, there was still enough added energy to the sound from the the guitar still sounded louder than it had before the solo started, even though I turned it down in comparison to where it was. So it kind of worked. It's you know, if you were listening critically, you might say, oh, well, maybe the drums and the other things kind of lost a little bit of energy at that point. But then they would if you tried leaving it flat and it just then hit the compression really hard as well. Yeah. Um, except then you'd probably get some pumping as well. So it's it's kind of some it's one of those sort of slightly surprising things somehow is is how effective just a simple and not necessarily huge. You know, I mean, my automation changes that I make in mastering tend to be one or two dBs at the most, I would say. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. 
as, as little as 0.3 or 0.5 of a dB sometimes can make enough of a difference to really help things out. So it's definitely a valuable technique that people should uh, kind of think of. And you can even go sort of to the, to the extremes of just automating certain notes, you know, really yeah. uh, short term, like, um, oh, well, so there's, a, there's a classic moment in Vertigo by U2. I think I'm right in saying that Bono often records his vocals really, really late in the day when they're doing their albums. Um, and in some cases, even in the mastering studio, which is not necessarily something that I would recommend. But that song, there has one point where he basically just shouts. And I don't know whether it was the mix or the master, but basically the whole track just ducks at that point because of him. And maybe if there had been some autom- some automation in there, because it's kind of, it's not even consistent. It's like part of the note is louder than the rest of it. So the whole kind of thing sort of wobbles around. <laughs> um, well, as I'm talking, maybe I'm hearing the result of somebody having done some automation to avoid it hitting the compressors too hard. But yeah. again, it's it's amazing how sometimes little tweaks like that, you can get just get this perfect balance where it, it just kind of somehow works, whereas it didn't before. And, and I think it's important to point this out that we're talking about this sort of volume automation. We're talking about pre-fader or pre-effects because um, as we pull down the, uh, the level of the track, by 2db we want that to be before it hits the compressor and all the other dynamics processors so that it cleans up or if we're boosting it up then we want it to hit that compressor harder that yeah. sort of thing yeah exactly uh yeah so my i mean we've mentioned it before but it's it's a great tip one of my favorite um techniques is you know you have a song where you're happy with the general level and the general amount of compression and then it it hits the chorus and it's just the compression is too heavy often you find that if you just ease the level back going into the compressor ever so slightly, you can reduce the amount of compression. It doesn't sound any quieter because the compressor was holding everything back anyway. And in fact, sometimes it can almost sound louder because it has more punch in it. Um, Yeah, and so you end up with something that sounds consistent or that has the lift that you want, even though you actually turned it down on the input to the compressor. Every once in a blue moon, I do... uh, automation after the compressor it's always pre-limiter um but you know i now and again you have a situation where you well you might even automate the level up into the compressor to get more compression happening and then bring it down right uh i mean i guess you could also automate the threshold of the compressor instead if you preferred but i for some reason that's just the way my brain works um yeah earliest in the chain makes the most sense to me for these sorts of things that's how i do it 95 times out of 100 yeah um absolutely how about mid-side processing um for like you know if if there's a frequency and frequency imbalance that's like just in the center or just on the sides the sides are too crazy bright or something like that that's one kind of easy way that we can solve these problems yeah i think yeah no i uh, that's something that i do uh reasonably regularly Again, even on mixes that I don't consider to be problem mixes, you know, uh, it's 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 a really powerful tool. Uh, it was a, it was a bit of a trade secret for a long time in mastering, but I think the cat is out of the bag these days. Um, and we did a whole episode um, on stereo techniques and on mid side, um, so we'll put links to that in the show notes at themasteringshow.com so that people can check that out if they like. But yeah, very briefly. Well, let's if we go back to that example I gave before, if you have a kind of super bright guitar, if you're lucky, that guitar will be 
panned one side or the other, or perhaps it'll be straight down the centre and whatever else is going on will be panned somewhere else. Let's say it's on the edge. If you're lucky, you can use a bit of EQ just in the side signal. Because obviously a, a problem would be if you just EQ out the kind of the harsh frequency of that guitar, let's say it was 3K or something, that could well mess up the sound of the snare and the sound of the top end of the vocals uh, or the the rest of the, the drum kit. If you apply that processing in the side signal, the S signal only, it's not going to have nearly as much effect or it probably won't have any effect at all if you're lucky on the, on the vocals and the snare, say, for example, which are in the center of the image. And another uh, favorite strategy I have is if you have widely panned guitars that sound a bit thin and I want some extra weight and kind of muscle in them, it can be quite nice to go, with a, go in with a low mid boost in the side only to bring that out. Or if you have a really kind of boomy resonant uh, kick drum, say, or kind of a snare that's a bit honky or whatever, you can go in with a notch that's just in the mid and that won't then take any weight out of the guitars that might be panned at the edges or the keyboards or whatever else it is in the arrangement. So it's a really powerful technique, but you have to be really careful with it because things can start to sound odd really quickly. We've talked before about whether or not to use linear phase EQ. That's one situation where I almost always use linear phase. Just this last week, I was working on something and was doing a little bit of mid-side EQ um, and forgot to switch from, I think I was using the fab filter on it, um, and it has this thing called natural phase, which is supposed to give you the best of both worlds. It's like cleaner than minimum phase EQ, but um, doesn't include the latency or the pre-ringing of phase linear EQ. And when I noticed that I was still using that setting and switched it over to phase linear EQ, suddenly it just, it just the clarity improved that little bit more. It just opened out um, sounded that little bit cleaner um, and it was quite a dense mix anyway and I was trying to kind of make some space by manipulating taking some of the a bit of build up out of the side signal so yeah that worked really nicely um, but you, if you go over the top things can start to sound really odd really quickly <laughs> um, let me I don't know if well, I can think of an example of something that would just sound really strange maybe something stereo like a piano um, if you, let's say you were boosting low mids in the side signal um, for the benefit of the guitars, that example I gave before, but you also had a big stereo piano sound, that's kind of kind of spreads the piano sound out from where it used to be. We imagine the original was kind of nice and natural. It's going to take the, the low mid area of that piano and kind of spread it out to the sides but not have as much effect on the upper stuff. So if somebody's playing chords, it's kind of, it's almost adding extra stereo spread to the chords. Um, it's difficult to describe, but it, it can sound really unnatural. Um, have you ever tried using it and kind of just ended up tying yourself up in knots? Because I know I have. And I, I find that sometimes it doesn't do what I expect or it doesn't do enough, but it's really just that relationship of if you affect something in the side signals it 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 affects the width of things mm -hmm. so if you cut something out of the sides then it kind of moves to the center mm -hmm. and and you can still hear it you can st still hear the problem so mm. there's there's that 
I mean, it's mid-side in general gets really complicated. We did a whole episode on it. Um, I had Ian Stewart as a guest, um, and it's pretty mind-mangling stuff because we always talk about it as mid and side, but it's actually the sum and difference, and the, the relationship between the two is more complicated than we actually tend to talk about it. But you're right. Yeah. There's As you adjust it, it's constantly changing. Yes, and it and it. Well, you're absolutely right. If you, you, you well, kind he's of, absolutely right. He's. I, a, <laughs> I just try to remember what he said. <laughs> yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. Well, I'm the I'm the same. That's why I invited him on the show because I get confused thinking about it. But no, I was going to say you're absolutely right. The point you made about you know you think oh I need some more EQ in say the guitars to to bring out the muscle that example that I used. You you go in and do that. The EQ has the effect that you want on the guitar tone. But it also uh, pushes the stereo image out, so it, yeah, it so now it's the whole a sound or something. Yeah, it kind of sounds yeah. unnatural. It can. I mean, if you go if if you go far enough, you start it starts sounding like you've you've got something in antiphase. Um, you know, so things kind of start sounding inside out almost, or you get sounds that kind of come sounds as though they're coming from outside of the the stereo image of the speakers, which it can be a cool effect sometimes, but. Uh, it can also kind of make you feel slightly nauseous. Um, and it yeah. certainly isn't mono compatible. It, it definitely needs to be used with a lot of caution. And if that's true of EQ, it's really, really true of mid-side compression. You can convert any stereo signal into a sum and a difference signal, which is a roughly speaking, a mid and a side signal. And then you can process those separately. Um, so you're not limited to EQ. You could apply mid-side distortion or mid-side, I don't know, delays or but, but i mean the common one that people try is mid-side compression and i've had really limited success with that i think i've only used it once in mastering and it was on a bonus track for a reissue of a keen album the first keen album um it was the deluxe edition it had all this extra stuff on it i guess just there was the guitar was completely out of control and when i tried to compress it everything else was kind of pumping and reacting with the compression and because the guitar was hard panned I experimented and I did get something that, you know, overall was more listenable, but it wasn't fantastic. Have you tried mid-side compression? I use it quite a bit when I'm mixing drums because mm -hmm. I, I love it on overheads um, just because I can like smash the kick and snare and also get extra width uh, from the cymbals. So, that, so for that, I like it, and especially with uh, so overheads and room mics, I use that a lot. I don't think I've ever used it in mastering. I've never tried or, it in a mix situation. Don't, when you're doing that, doesn't the, the the drum kit kind of expand and contract depending on what the beat is doing, or is it because because the kick and the snare are kind of short, and you have a reasonably fast release time, you don't actually hear it shifting? It just because because the kick and the snare have their own mics, I I feel like that keeps it solid. Okay. And just, yeah, I just get extra width from it, essentially. I okay. usually also filter out quite a bit of the, the lows from my overheads. But this is off topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember any time that mid-side compression has been useful in mastering. We mentioned Ian Stewart, and I should also mention that he has a new article comparing different ways of summing the low end. Mm. He compares a bunch of different tools. My favorite Klanghelm BUMT Deluxe does not do well in that um, situation, <laughs> apparently. But I don't think I'm going to stop using it because I still like it. <laughs> so do you use do you use that feature? 
because I love the the VMT as well. I recommend it all the time, but I don't use any of the processing. Um, I just use the kind of the monitoring features. I, so I'll use it to listen to the side signal, listen to the mid signal, swap left and right. Um, that's a really top tip if anybody's concerned about is my left and right balanced? If you can flip the left and the right channels without hearing a big change in the, you know, without hearing the image kind of lurch one way or the other, then you probably are balanced. Um, but yeah, I've, it's got a few kind of processing options under the hood that I've never tried. There is a, a function in it that makes everything below a certain frequency mono, and you can control the strength of that. Which is traditionally called an elliptical filter, I think. Yeah. Um, so apparently the implementation of that isn't the best, um, but that it's apparently not as straightforward as it might seem, um, making, making that function work. So, But I have used it on field recordings often. Um, I find that like in stereo ambient ambiences, I don't like any sort of like wind or pretty much in, in general, I just don't like stereo bass unless it's as a, a special effect mm -hmm. where it's supposed to pulse between the left and right. I like it to be solid in the middle below whatever Hertz. Mm -hmm. I don't know. hundred Hertz, mm -hmm. let's say. And and so I just use that just to like nudge everything kind of closer to that. And I find that any sort of phase issues that I have from the the microphone positioning often kind of tightens up. Yeah, well, I mean, an interesting thing, if you have out of phase, I mean, one of the most distracting things um, in terms of bass information in the stereo image is when actually it's not in phase. Um, you know, so you've got phase differences between the left and the right. Um, that can cause a problem at the vinyl cut. Um, and that's where elliptical filters come from, is that they were originally used to to control the 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 imaging in the in the bass for vinyl. And one of the useful things about that is I think in his article, Ian is talking about avoiding cancellation so, so you don't lose the bass information when you narrow it down. Yeah, that that's the thing. Different tools will keep the same level of bass. Um well or not. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be useful to have some of that cancel out, actually, you know. I mean, oddly enough, it's you do it when you're cutting to vinyl, but also if you have stuff coming off, off of vinyl, quite a lot of the rumble can sometimes be out of phase. So it can actually be useful to have, uh, to, to, to narrow that stereo information in the bass and have some of that kind of extraneous stuff cancel out. But then other times you want to keep it. So, uh, yeah, it's another case of, of mid-side or some and difference being complicated. <laughs> but yeah, everybody yeah. should check out Ian's article and we should put a link to that in the, the show notes as well. So we're kind of progressing, you know, we, we've had a fairly benign way of addressing problems in a mix, which is automation. Um, then we've had a slightly more kind of aggressive process, which would be mid-side EQ. I mean, obviously EQ in general is a great tool for sorting out mixes, but that's kind of part and parcel of... Um, I guess we could quickly mention, you know, I mean, sometimes you, a reason that a mix might be maybe not crappy, but kind of not ideal is because you have some kind of big resonance in there. Um, maybe a particular string and a guitar booms out or something, or the, there's a ring in the drums that kind of just overwhelms everything else. So just kind of really tight, specific surgical EQ can help those. Um, so that or automated EQ, automated EQ, well. yeah, absolutely. Just for those notes, um, and actually, um, dynamic EQ um, 
it's probably something we should mention. Well, dynamic EQ and multiband compression can both help with um, these kind of things. We, we've kind of talked about them quite a lot in other episodes, so we don't need to go into too much detail. But, uh, well, the example I gave earlier, where you have bright drums and a dull vocal sound, um, I actually had an example of that to deal with recently. Um, and in the end, the, the client asked if he could send me some stems. Um, so he sent me the drums, well, the, the, actually the whole mix of the band separately from the vocals. So I was able to EQ the vocals one way. And then I used a dynamic EQ on the, to control this kind of harsh quality in the cymbals. Um, so I just found this particular frequency where they were singing out and set it up so that it only pulled the EQ back at those points. Um, but you could also automate that EQ by hand. So just go in and, and you know, sort of, yeah, literally pull out by hand certain frequencies at certain points if necessary. That might work really well on a bass guitar or something where if there's lots of instruments at a similar frequency in the arrangement, it can be hard to get an automate, a dynamic EQ or some kind of automatic process to control exactly what you want. Same with a de-esser. Typical problem we're trying to de-esser master because a de-esser is kind of a, a particular type of dynamic EQ, basically, um, is that not only will the S's that you want to calm down trigger it, but also maybe the hi-hat or something else in the cymbals or um, part of the guitar tone, perhaps. So if that's a real problem and you really want to go to town to fix it, you could go in and just EQ out the, the S frequencies by hand whenever they're necessary and not otherwise. So yeah, EQ in general can be a very powerful tool to, to help with this stuff. Pure EQ is pretty benign, like automating levels. Um, dynamic EQ is maybe a bit more aggressive. Mid-side EQ is a bit more aggressive than that. But now we start getting into the really aggressive stuff. Um, the, the real kind of, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and actually, I'm thinking of, a, of a, a tool that is brand new. I only got to play with it myself in the last few weeks, and it's included with RX-7. Um, the isotope software um, and they call it music rebalance and it's actually the ability you have up to a point you can go in and actually affect the level of different things within the mix um, so when you kind of fire it up you've got four faders if you like one of them is vocals one of them is percussion one of them is bass and the other one is everything else. Um, and so, for example, if you literally pull all of them down to zero, except for the vocals, it will extract the vocal from the mix for you. That's probably not particularly useful, although in a minute I'm going to talk about a way that it might be useful. Um, but what that means is you can, to some extent, do a remix of a stereo file because you can increase, say, the vocal level or you can decrease the vocal level. Um, Whereas otherwise you would basically be looking at, I guess, maybe dynamic EQ or multiband compression to kind of control those kind of things. And that would be about it. Um, in this case, you can actually try and improve the mix before you master it. The technology kind of evolves out of what, our, I mean, I, I should say I love RX. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit bizarre given that it's basically a piece of restoration software, but it's, it's just so powerful and so effective it's just really satisfying to use. I, I really enjoy looking at, you know, it displays the music. You can just have it displayed as a waveform or a spectrogram. 
um, which I really like. It's, it's just a whole other way of visualizing music and, you know, the, the denoising and the, the spectral repair capabilities and all the rest of it are, are just really impressive. Um, if anybody hasn't used it, it basically you can see the, the frequency of the music spread out for you as it plays, which means that you can actually see individual notes. I mean, if you look at somebody, if you look at, say, a, a singer, you can actually see the the vibrato in their note kind of tracing as a wavy line across the screen. And you can also see the harmonics in the note. So you can see the fundamental, the pitch that they're singing, and then the octave and the other harmonics above that kind of spreading out. So, you know, kind of originally it was amazing because you could do things like take a, a thump out of some really delicate passage. You know, if you've got, uh, well, the first example I ever saw of it was, was of a, uh, a chair scrape in a choir piece. Um, and it was actually as the choir were breathing in. And if anybody's ever tried to edit a noise out of something like that, you'll know how hard it is to get a convincing result. It's almost impossible to to do that kind of edit. But with RX, you can just draw a box around the, the chair scrape. Um, and it kind of has a thing like a Photoshop clone tool where you can just basically wipe it out. And it takes some skill to do it properly. But for something like a thump or a click, that's a really simple process later versions it will automatically recognize if the thing that you're selecting has harmonics and try and capture as many of those harmonics for you as possible so it started to be possible to almost delete an entire instrument from a mix and this whole music rebalance thing is a kind of evolution of that technology i think where the software is listening and going okay that's a voice isolating out the components of it and giving you control over it that's the drums or that's the bass or whatever um and it's a bit like a miracle. I know I've been talking about it for a long time, but it is seriously impressive. It's not perfect. The way that all of these things work is to using kind of similar strategies to lossy data compression encoding of audio. Um, so they they're looking and kind of if you want to if you have a, a cymbal crash and a bass guitar playing at the same time and you want to take the bass guitar out of that cymbal crash if you just take it out you're kind of left with a gap where it used to be and that sounds really unnatural there are holes in the frequency spectrum so the software has to guess what was there before and try and fill them in and part of that has to take into account the kind of the masking things that happen so you know if if one if there are two frequencies very close together our ear tends to latch onto one of them so that one becomes more noticeable than the other so when you start doing this kind of processing you tend to get artifacts that are a bit like mp3 encoding so this kind of slightly swirly kind of phasey or if anybody's ever tried denoising something taking the hiss out of something the kind of all those kind of sounds if you use it too much but just playing with this and using the example that i mentioned earlier in the show of the live recording where there was no real bass in the signal you can get a, a meaningful improvement um, i was able to boost the level of the bass in that recording by 3 dBs. And it, it worked, and it, it didn't introduce anything that was certainly not that was any worse than kind of not having had enough bass in the first place, right? With all of this kind of stuff, it's a, it's a cost-benefit assessment. It's like, okay, if I do this, there's going to be, with all of these processes we've been talking about, really, there's a disadvantage. If you automate down a guitar solo because it was too loud, the disadvantage is that everything else will go down with it if you're working on a stereo mix. And you've got to figure out whether that was worth doing you know whether that's a compromise worth making for the overall sound of the the or the impact emotion whatever of the the piece of music you're working on 
Same thing applies with this. If you turn the vocal down and you start hearing something slightly swirly in the, the cymbals as a result, is that more distracting and annoying than the fact that the voice was too loud to begin with or not? And you have to make these decisions. But you can even start getting really creative with it. In the example I was, I'm talking about, the low end of the bass was pretty well represented, but the, the high note in the bass line just wasn't really there. So even when you use the rebalance tool in RX to lift the bass up in level, that high note still wasn't working. But what I found was that if I added an EQ boost to push the level of that frequency up initially, used the rebalance to increase the bass level, and then did an opposite cut in the EQ afterwards. So a kind of a pre and post emphasis thing, if you like, a bit like I was talking about with the compression earlier, where you push the level up into the compressor harder and then pull it back afterwards so the level doesn't change, but you end up with more compression. In this case, I was able to pull that high note in the bass line out. Um, and I've only kind of really sort of scratched the surface with it, but the, the, the potential of it is is pretty amazing. I've talked about that for a long time. Is that something you're interested in playing with, John? Or are you kind of thinking, no, uh, this is the point where I really just kind of say, this is what it was and that's how I'm going to leave it? Yeah, it, it seems, I, I think for creative purposes, it's very interesting. I was surprised at their demos at how good it sounded, that it actually worked at all. Um, mm. I mean, I shouldn't be surpri surprised by Isotope, but Isotope RX consistently su surprises me at how good it is, mm -hmm. uh, even though I've been using it for so long. Uh, yeah. So I haven't used that one, but it's definitely interesting, but not something that like that I feel is right to use, I guess, in mastering. No. Well, I mean, that's why I said it's kind of right up, you know, if, if you start off with kind of level automation, that I don't think anybody really would have a problem with. And you get to the point of, well, mid-side compression, and I pretty much draw a line at that. Um, this is kind of one step beyond that. But I think for those for those real problem cases, you know, where it's a demo and it's the only thing that exists or it's a live recording and there's nothing else to be done or the, the original files are corrupted, at least it's an option, you know, it's there. Yeah. We, we can try it. And I agree. It is, it's amazing. I mean, I have to say, if you just say pull out the vocal, it sounds pretty unnatural. But in terms of just adjusting the level of things within the mix, the, the thing that I was really interested to try um, and almost kind of worked was uh, to, so in that example I was talking about earlier with where you've got very bright drums and a very dull vocal, I did an experiment where, in this case, I actually had the stems um, to compare with. So I used RX to separate out the vocals, the drums, um, all the kind of created artificial stems, if you like, and then swapped those into the stem master version that the client had asked me to make of this song that we've been having problems with. Um, and it worked pretty well. There were some artifacts that were audible, but I'm, I want to do some more experimenting to see if I can, cause there's a few parameters you can play with. So it is amazing how something that sounds quite unnatural. If you just listen to the vocals say, um, you know, I know people are going to use this stuff to create a cappella versions of, um, famous songs or to create, you know, karaoke versions and that doesn't kind of sound great. It always sounds a bit weird and unnatural. But when you recombine everything into a mix, it kind of works. And so to have the potential to to take a mix where something was just, you know, completely wrong to begin with and at least improve it um, is pretty amazing. You know, I mean, I think your point of view and brings us full circle. 
you know, it is that's that's a a real kind of last ditch thing to try where there's just no other alternative. The only way that you can get a usable example. There's another example I um, heard of, which was the Beatles recording live at the Hollywood Bowl um, was reissued recently as an album. It's been available as an album since forever, but most people agree it was basically unlistenable because the crowd was screaming so loud and the amplification back then was so puny um, that over the entire performance is just this constant scream from the crowd, um, which actually is kind of painful to listen to. And the the guys at Abbey Road, I think, did something similar to what we're talking about here. I think in that case, they created some kind of computer model that actually emulated a crowd and enabled them to separate out the elements and kind of rebalance them. They only reduced the level of the screaming by three or four dBs or something, but it made all of the difference. And it's impressively successful. So, you know... There are times when you might want to do this stuff. I think it's time for mastering Maxim. Don't do this. <laughs> Don't try and master <laughs> crappy mixes. Uh, if you realise that the process of mastering, and that is something that happens, you know, you, you think the mix was fine, and then you come to master it, and you suddenly realise there are problems. Don't spend the next day kind of fighting against that. Uh, you know, accept that okay, the mix could have been better, and go back and improve the mix. You'll get a better end result. You'll learn something in the process. Um, the mastering will be more minimal and you'll have done the right thing. <laughs> so, yeah, right that's on. that's kind of what I have to say on the subject. Is, do you think there's anything we missed? Anything else we need to cover? No, I don't think so. A, a lot of people struggle with mastering when the mixes aren't good. Um, they've, they hear that mastering needs a light touch, but they've got to throw everything at it. So, yeah probably the mix yeah it's that's an interesting balancing act um that that could be another topic as well um just that mastering is best when you go in with a light touch but you don't always have to um and sometimes you know doing these kind of really aggressive things can achieve amazingly impressive results but it's definitely a, a with great power comes great responsibility kind of situation so um your mileage may vary um, and yeah, all disclaimers apply. Maybe we'll come back to the RX um, music rebalance thing in the ethics or responsibilities episode. Oh, we're doing an ethics and responsibilities episode, are we? <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you, John, for um, helping me get through the, this topic as always and for um, mixing the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, if you like the show please head over to itunes give us a rating and review we're also now available on spotify some people think that's a good thing some people think it's a bad thing but we are um and pretty much anywhere else you can get your podcasts uh but yeah please leave us a rating review that really helps people find the show thanks to kaylee law for letting us use his music as always and thanks for listening Sorry, you're going to say something. I was holding in a sneeze. <laughs> uh, <laughs>